Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. As winter ebbs, the focus of the legal and political worlds are fixed firmly forward toward the spring and a cascade of potentially historic and country-altering events. First, Special Counsel Jack Smith seems to be much closer to an endgame in his investigation of potential crimes by Donald Trump and his circle than was generally understood just a few weeks ago. And he is not only running at a quick pace, he also is executing a series of aggressive prosecutorial maneuvers that show him to be uncowed by the historical gravity of his assignment. This week, Smith issued subpoenas to two figures with intimate knowledge of Trump's actions surrounding January 6th, former Vice President Mike Pence and former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He also moved to pierce the attorney-client privilege to get discussions Trump may have had with lawyer Evan Corcoran regarding the false response Team Trump filed to the DOJ subpoena for classified documents last August. All these moves have provoked anticipation of a federal indictment of the former president sometime in the next few months, just as the presidential campaign is heating up. Speaking of which, three months after Trump announced his candidacy for president, he got his first declared opponent in former South Carolina governor and UN ambassador Nikki Haley. The weight of political analysis seems to be that neither she nor Pence who plainly wants the job as well, stands to pose a serious challenge. The far and away most likely nominee after Trump is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has not yet declared but is positioning himself at the far right on a series of culture war issues in his state. DeSantis is popular among the Republican donor class, but it remains unknown if he has the charisma and dexterity to whether the gutter politics Trump loves to deploy against political challengers. To analyze this rich brew of law and politics, I'm thrilled to welcome three of the most thoughtful and respected commentators in the country. And they are Maggie Haberman, a senior political correspondent for the New York Times, author of the 2022 book Confidence Man, the Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, which was previously featured on Talking Books. Among her extensive reporting on the Trump administration, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for reporting on Donald Trump's advisors' connections to Russia. I also found while preparing for this episode that she had, seemed like every third big story was her byline maybe with colleagues, but I think that's not so special about this week, but anytime you talk Trump. Anyway, Maggie Haberman, first trip to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Harry, and thank you for the very kind introduction. Josh Marshall, a journalist, blogger, and the founder of Talking Points Memo, which in 2007 became the first and only blog to win the George Polk Award for Legal Reporting. I have to say this every time he joins the podcast because it's true. It's the best blog out there. It's the one that first introduced me to blogs. It's the place I start in the morning, and you just can't do better than Talking Points Memo. Josh also hosts the Josh Marshall Podcast, where he and guests provide insights into the big political stories of the day. Josh Marshall, thanks so much for coming back to Talking Feds. 
Thanks as always. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. And Charlie Sykes, who was maybe last with us in Austin, I'm trying to remember, at the Texas uh, Festival. Correct. He is, of course, founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark, where he hosts The Bulwark's daily podcast. He writes the daily newsletter, Morning Shots. He is also the author of nine books, I want to say, most recently, How the Right Lost Its Mind. And he's a contributor to MSNBC and NBC News. Welcome, as always, Charlie. It's good to be back, Harry. Thank you. All right, let's start with a lot of pretty big-time developments in the Jack Smith special counsel investigation. Smith himself remains a very private figure. I'm not sure anyone has even seen him outside the walls of the DOJ, but a big newsmaker. And in recent days, he's fired several shots across the bow of good ship Trump, subpoenas to Vice President Pence and Mark Meadows, and a challenge looking to pierce the attorney-client communications between the former president and his lawyer, Evan Corcoran. Let's start with the Pence subpoena. What evidence is Smith looking for in particular from Pence? How important is it? Anybody? It's pretty important. Pence is, an, is, a, is a, among the key, if not the key, witness to Trump's efforts to stay in power ahead of January 6th and his intention as he was approaching that day and as he was going to this pro-Trump rally at the Ellipse near the White House just prior to the congressional certification beginning, which then erupted into a pro-Trump mob rioting at the Capitol. So Pence's information could be vital. And, you know, Pence's Yet another official, Harry, like Peter Navarro, who have written about some of his exchanges with Trump right. in books, but then I can't talk about it. And so I think that he is going to see a lot of pressure along those lines. You know, I also think that what Pence wrote in his book, and it was very interesting reading what he wrote about his exchanges with Trump, but there's a lot more there, as I understand it, beyond what he offered uh, in print. Yeah, it sure seems that to me. He's had these kind of milk toast, mealy the president was reckless. But, you know, we want the words. I think Jack Smith wants the words. And there are certain things that Pence and Pence alone can testify exactly. to that otherwise wouldn't be admissible in a court. But those three, four calls in that one meeting in the wings of the Oval Office where Trump is just berating him vulgarly, etc. And the other thing that occurred to me, and I, I just want to say as a lawyer, it's going to matter that Smith make a showing that here's some stuff only Pence has. You know, he had these weekly, I think, lunches yes. with Trump that, that extended past the election. So are, was there any indication in those that Trump knew, as others had reported, that he had lost? What about his political calculus here? Were you surprised that he's challenging it and this somewhat newfangled uh, legislative official theory as a would-be presidential candidate? What's he juggling? So I'm going to admit that I was I was a little bit surprised, but that's simply because I was naive and I forgot who Mike Pence actually was. I mean, yeah. I understand that he might have the political calculus that he needs to look like he's drag kicking and screaming, that he has resisted this as much as possible. I think that's ludicrous. What I find more extraordinary, though, is, and, and this may not be strictly a political calculus, is the way that Mike Pence is walking away from his own profile in courage. The defining moment in his entire political career was when he came back to the Capitol when he finished the vote. This was his finest hour, his finest moment. This would be, you know, his one line in history. He obviously knows that and yet has been trying to minimize it since 
because he continues to pursue this, what I think is a you know, completely quixotic campaign for president. He's not going to be president, but as a result, he's also diminishing the role that he played. But again, he may not have a choice. And of course, he's Mike Pence. And we know what the Republican base will tolerate and what they won't tolerate. I have the same sense because, you know, you said would-be presidential candidate. Would-be is, 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 is doing <laughs> a lot of work there because, yeah. and I think that at some basic level, it's very hard to evaluate the question because to many of us, his candidacy is so deeply absurd. It is so hopeless that it's a little hard to make sense of these ancillary questions. Like, you know, does yeah. he have to do this to remain viable as a 2024 presidential candidate. Well, he's not viable now. So it's a little hard to find the delta between the two scenarios. But I think we have sort of seen that there are two options in the Republican world. You testify, in which case you are basically saying, I'm anti-Trump now. That's what it means. In practice, it probably does mean that because you know that you're going to become anti-Trump whether you want to or not. You know, you're one of those people who testified in the Jan 6 committee and stuff. You know, you've made right. your choice. But I do think at the basic point, if you're cooperating against Trump, and it's not really cooperating, it's just following the law. It's a binary thing. And, you know, you'd have better sense of this than I would. But the I'm a congressional official thing is, you know, yes, there's a bit of an ambiguity in the Constitution about who the vice president is in separation of powers terms. But even speech and debate, this isn't speech and debate, let alone crime fraud exceptions. So I'm a little confused whether I'm supposed to put this down as so absurd that it's almost like kind of not trying, like, oh, you know, hold yeah. me back, hold me back kind of thing, or probably more, what else can he say, right? I mean, what else, what else does he have? Yeah, I said they chose that. Maggie, you wrote that it was novel, this yeah. approach. Yes, it is novel. And and why it's novel, among, among other reasons, is that, yes, he, to Josh's point, he does technically wear two hats. He is the president of the Senate and he's the vice president. This is the opposite of his explanation for why he wouldn't be willing to testify before the House January 6th committee, which is a legislative committee. And so it is novel to watch somebody come up with such a, a legal contortion, whether it's going to be successful, we're not going to know for many months, I suspect, because this is going to go through several challenges. And that's one measure of success, right? Just that he can do it. And it was pithily put by someone, oh, wait a second, that was me, that he can wear <laughs> um, two hats, but not simultaneously. Right, that's right. You know, I think that will be the ultimate answers, but the contours are pretty open-ended. So I agree with what everyone was saying, including the quixotic nature of the candidacy. But what it said to me, I mean, he is a rational actor, is everyone has concluded that there's no path to the nomination that doesn't somehow absorb the lion's share of the 30 or 32 percent. That's obviously what he was privileging. He was most worried that the people who are now undying supporters of Trump would hold it against him if he didn't kick and scream in any way he could. Because he could have come forward, got it over with, really stuck the knife into Trump, and there's no, not much love lost. But he decided he just can't afford to alienate that group, it seems to me. 
That's not who Mike Pence is. Mike Pence is also not somebody who goes and looks to jab someone, whether it was Donald Trump or not, whether there had been hang Mike Pence chance or not. Under any circumstance, Mike Pence tends to be the same. And so I think it is less of a surprise. What I'm less clear on, and I don't want to get us away from Pence's candidacy, but what I'm less clear on is Jack Smith obviously knows that Pence was likely to challenge this by filing this subpoena. So what I can't tell is, is he trying to run this to ground to the extent that he can, knowing that he is on something of a shot clock because of the the campaign heating up, so that he can then make the argument that he ran everything he could to ground and did everything he could. And I'm not sure to what end. Is that in service of a charge or against a charge? You're right. I mean, he's not the kind of guy that's going to, uh, you know, punch back. But, you know, what makes this uh, presidential run so quixotic is that whatever he does, he's never going to get that 32 percent of hardcore Trump voters. He has lost that. There's nothing he can do. That is true. So I think that he's trying to, whether thread the needle, walk the line. But I thought it was kind of interesting that National Review's resident lawyer, pundit Andy McCarthy, wrote a pretty strong piece saying how he thought that Pence's legal argument was frivolous. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't comment on that. But he also thought that it would politically backfire because if he thinks that somehow it's going to appease the Trump base, he's wrong, and it may end up just making him look weaselly and weak. There's one other thing about Mike Pence is that Mike Pence does have this sense of himself doing the right thing. And so I'm going to give up the horse race punditry for Lent for this this (laughs) podcast, but There's got to be part of Mike Pence still deep inside there somewhere that thinks this is my duty to cooperate with this investigation. I ought to tell the truth. I ought to do the right thing. But just saying those words just sounds silly now, doesn't it? It kind of does, especially (laughs) these words, because it's so clearly he's not doing a legislative act. Let me just answer Maggie's question and do the put my only lawyers had on. And here's my best guess of what happened. They negotiated out for months. I think Pence was looking to not actually say things under oath. And Smith was, you know, holding fast and saying no way. But I'll bet this is when this argument was developed, this new one. And I think what they said was, okay, maybe this doesn't fly. But unlike the executive privilege, which they're making quick work of, this is going to draw you out months into 2024, et cetera. And I think they went back and forth on that. And Smith eventually said, screw it, see you in court. It could come to a point. We don't know. I mean, relative to the, to the executive privilege things that have gone very quickly up to the D.C. Circuit and been decided under seal. Yeah, I do think it's the sort of thing, uh, Pache, Andy McCarthy, that there's going to be briefing on and hearings and it will draw out. Will it be enough to extend... In fact, actually, let me just follow up on that and your reference, Maggie, to a game clock. Everyone's focused on that. It's part of the frustration. The charges haven't been brought yet. How do you see the game clock, which is somewhat of a legal concept, but also somewhat political? When does he really have to move or the whole thing gets just totally bollocked up with the uh, election race? Trump's folks would argue we're there already, just to be clear. But from looking at it from the outside objectively, our reporting is that Smith would like to have a decision sometime around summer 
that seems to be, frankly, more specific to the documents case, because in the documents case, there are yeah. fewer people involved, right? The January 6th case Much is cleaner. sprawling and involves so many different people and so many different components. So I think that becomes a little harder. I think realistically, if we start getting into summer, at which point there are going to be potentially, you know, eight candidates declared in the race. I don't think it's going to be many more than that, by the way. This is, I think, much likelier to be a 2012 size field than a 2016 size field. Mm -hmm. But even then, Mm -hmm. it's still a decent sized field. I think at that point, you are going to see Donald Trump amp up his claims of this political, this is false. What we don't know is, again, just because nothing can be taken in a vacuum here, how that overlays with two state investigations that Donald Trump is facing. One is in New York and one is in Georgia. And obviously the Georgia report just came out yesterday. I don't know what the backdrop of either of those will be like by the time we get to May. By the time Smith is making a recommendation, which Harry, you know better than I do, Garland would have to sign off on. And I'm not sure that Garland wants to, unless it's a a clear cut case. Trump may already be under indictment is is my point. I guess, you know, just as sort of a global point, and this is something we have seen on so many different fronts over the last five or six years, justice delayed is justice denied. And I think there's a very basic question about how the federal judiciary operates today, which is, I take your point, this might take some time because it is so, you know, new is one way to put it, but executive privilege, it's pretty universally recognized, is a thing. So litigating whether it applies in different contexts is a legitimate judicial process. I think the vast majority of people, lawyers and not lawyers, would say what he's invoking now is not a legitimate thing. So if you're actually going to have this be a five or six month process in a real world context where that five or six months makes a big difference huge. I think that raises some pretty serious questions, again, about the function of the federal judiciary today. Because I would think there would be some effort, and and obviously the particulars matter. A federal judge doesn't just say, this is BS, forget it. But there are process ways that you do the same thing. I really think, again, that's something pretty basic here that we've seen. Governments have to be able to act to protect themselves. And they have to act in the real world. Yes, exactly. Exactly. When real world conditions apply. And I think we have seen numerous cases over the last five or six years where it's a very open question whether legal accountability works because of the time things take. Now, there's a separate question of legal accountability. Should Merrick Garland have been issuing indictments right out of the gate in 2021? That's a different question. That is a fundamentally political question. That's not the path they took. But this is one about the judiciary. And I think the answer so far is a pretty bad one. Well, it's interesting. It's ground slowly. But you know, I do think they're more or less a success story when they have Ruled. You're 100% right. And this is the actual reason when you analyze it why congressional subpoenas wound up being impotent. Just the time difference, because they're every bit as on paper, every bit as coercive as ones from the executive branch. But the point here is actually that judiciary does have tools for moving things rather quickly. U.S. versus Nixon is a great example of it. But even moving something quickly through three levels of the judiciary on an unresolved question is already very challenging to the the game clock that Maggie identified. 
I'll just say again, as a lawyer, the legal answer the system will supply is, you know, show up and raise your right hand. But going back to this whole question of the game clock, this is massively important at this point. Because I'd always been under the assumption that, you know, spring, mid-spring, late spring would be really the, the last possible time to bring these charges because of the delays that we're talking about. I mean, first of all, it's been more than 25 months in January 6th, and then now we're going to get into the federal judiciary. If you get into the summer, uh, the presidential race will be in full swing. The prospect of a trial in the middle of 2024 becomes less and less attractive, has to become a massive factor here. So this is one of those cases where the delay itself may be the substantive decision. So all of these things working together, the long period of time that has elapsed since January 6th with no indictments, now going into this litigation phase, correct me if I'm wrong, seems inconceivable that we'd be looking at a trial before 2024 and the prospect of a trial in the middle of a presidential race, I think, changes the dynamic. So all of these details, I think, then become basically shadowed by this game clock. I and mean, that's not just one of the factors. That may be the determining factor at this point. Here we are in the age of Trump. But I'll, I'll just say, for listeners' sake, I think the three of you all know it, but just with pedestrian motions, not even sort of rarefied ones involving his role as former president, he can drag it out a year until a jury is actually impaneled. If the line you're looking for is an actual trial, you have to add about a year. All right, let's move to Corcoran and Mark Meadows. So a pretty aggressive move to pierce the attorney-client privilege with Corcoran. What is that one about? What's the evidence that, that Smith is trying to get at? And did this strike you as a, another sort of very aggressive move on his part? I wish I knew what evidence he was trying yeah. to get. What we know is that Corcoran was closely involved with Trump on the documents issue beginning soon after, it was like around April, after the National Archives recovered that first 15 boxes of material from Trump. In January of 2022, Corcoran was brought in by Boris Epstein, a close Trump advisor right. who's been heavily involved both in politics around Trump and legal around Trump, which is unusual. Corcoran was the one interfacing with the DOJ. And, you know, after a May 2022 subpoena, grand jury subpoena was issued for any additional classified material. Corcoran was one of the people at Mar-a-Lago when the top counterterrorism official uh, or counterintelligence official, excuse me, uh, from the DOJ came down right. in early June. Corcoran is involved in turning over this material. Another lawyer, Christina Bob, writes a, a, an attestation saying that a diligent search has been conducted and everything has now been turned over. Now, Corcoran, Can I just quickly interject? Because I think Corcoran writes it and he says to the junior attorney, Christina, you sign, uh, you sign, sign right it. here. You sign it. And so he drafts it and she has told people that she added some caveats actually to make it slightly right. less ironclad. She has right. appeared before the Justice Department at least twice. And the Wall Street Journal says one was the grand jury. So I have to assume it relates to that. It could be something else, but it's a, an incredibly aggressive move that they are moving to try to push through attorney-client conversations that Trump was having. And it's worth noting, and again, everybody on this panel knows this, lawyers around Trump often end up ensnared in these investigations themselves. Look at Michael Cohen, right, who was Trump's personal lawyer and fixer, who is this week went in for the 16th time 
to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to be interviewed. So I think it is a huge deal. We don't know what Corcoran will say, assuming that a judge signs off on this. A judge still has to sign off. I think they're going back and forth. The Justice Department has filed the motion, but there has not been a response yet. I have to assume, just based on the judge's previous rulings, that she or her successor, who's coming in soon, will rule in favor of the DOJ. And if that happens, Smith is not doing this unless he is planning on going down a road that's pretty dark for Donald Trump. Judge Carter did this in California with mm-hmm. Eastman. Yes. And it was a pretty big deal. But at this point, is it just sort of old news or she or Jeb Bozberg makes such a finding? Is that seismic in and of itself in the political realm? It's seismic in and of itself in the political realm, just because, again, it becomes a talking point for Trump. It becomes something to point yeah. to in terms of the DOJ thinking. Their DOJ is making this motion based on the crime fraud exception. And so that will become something else that gets pointed to. I think just informationally and legally, it is potentially a very big deal because Corcoran was right in the middle of all of this. Yeah, I'll be the lawyer again and then turn it over. I, you know, look, Corcoran either was incredibly loyal and did all this stuff, not talking to Trump and giving him deniability, right. or more likely, he said, okay, boss, what do we do now? And maybe Trump says, these are all mine and you don't have to do anything. But that would be in terms of the putative leading charge of obstruction in the Mar-a-Lago stuff, that would be some vivid evidence going to Trump. And we didn't know, and I just should, Harry, that that Evan Corcoran has already appeared before the grand jury and has started attorney-client repeatedly. And so that is part of what they're looking to get past. Okay. I think the biggest event this week, it didn't play that way just because of the timing of news, but was the subpoena to Mark Meadows, who has been, if he isn't already cooperating, and which I tend to doubt, he's been really, for him, very luckily kind of silent and on the sidelines. He's got a good lawyer, former deputy in the department, and he's had a couple breaks that kept him totally out of the clutches after the first cache of documents he gave over to the January 6th committee. But he's everywhere. He's literally, you know, up to his ears. It's with Trump way more than anybody is totally leading the charge with members of Congress, which is a possible criminal whole sort of sub enterprise. And but he's also this kind of strange to me when the docs come out sort of yes, man, like a terrible, terrible chief of staff. But who's ever talking, he's just nodding along with what's your sense of how loyal he is to Trump? At this point, I remember being on a cable panel once and there was a discussion about, will Michael Cohen ever flip? And I was very confident in my opinion. No, there's no way. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen how that goes. But Mark Meadows does not strike me as the guy that's willing to do hard time to stand up, you know, for the boss. And as you point out, he is everywhere. He has every communication. And you think about the role that he played with the January 6th committee by turning over that massive trove of text messages and then stopping to cooperate. But but think about what he's already turned over. I mean, this guy is at the nexus of every conversation, it feels like, that took place on January 6th. So my only caveat here is that you put together these stories, you know, going after Corcoran and going after Pence certainly does sound like these are the, you know, final steps that a prosecutor would take. But I think we've been doing this for so many years. The whole walls are closing in on Donald Trump <laughs> right. any minute now. It's, uh, it's imminent. Yeah. We've been doing this for so long. Just keep reminding ourselves that we don't have a lot of transparency into what's going on. But these are very aggressive moves. And you can't even imagine building a strong case against Donald Trump without having these characters and 
Mark Meadows in the room because he was literally in the room for all of these conversations. If I was Donald Trump, I would not bet the farm on Mark Meadows' spine of steel standing up against a, a federal grand jury and federal prosecutors. My former prosecutor said, again, just for a second, is to say they are definitely, you know, I'm confident, penultimate moves. I mean, this is really down the line. Of course, as we were just talking about with Pence, that doesn't mean they take a week. They could take a couple months, but he is closing in. And I think one of the couple biggest headlines of the last couple of weeks is how advanced he is, not just on Mar-a-Lago, but as you know, Maggie was pointing out, January 6th, sprawling, messy, maybe you want to tackle it after Mar-a-Lago, but not him. He's really also, I think, far down the line on January 6th. After all, Pence only goes to January 6th. The other part of this equation is we talked in the last segment about, you know, all this delay. It's 25 months ago. Nothing has happened. Yeah. Well, probably a lot has happened. You know, Jack Smith didn't just totally. start his investigation. Yeah. It certainly seemed at the time that they had already kind of gotten to the green on the 18th hole and they wanted someone else to come in for the final decision. So that part of it doesn't surprise me. The other part about Mark Meadows is the question of how much time you're willing to do in federal prison is one question. But the other one is loyalty to Donald Trump is a fading commodity. That's so 2016. The guy wants a future, right? I forget yeah. the guy's name, but the rep down in South Carolina who in one of those texts was pleading for Meadows to have Trump declare martial law and throw out the results. He's endorsing Nikki Ralph Haley. Norman. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that is a dying commodity, the loyalty of Republican politicians to Donald Trump. There's still a lot of question in my mind, you know, what happens when he is leading the delegate count a year from now, right. a year from now, a year and a couple months with, you know, 45% of the vote. Super Tuesday, I think, is 14 months away or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty basic question. I mean, it's a funny question because Michael Cohen had already taken lots of risks for Donald Trump, not political risks, personal risks, committing things that could easily be construed as crimes on his behalf. And at least in a couple of cases, were later effectively construed as crimes and he ended up doing time. That's a very different thing from like, OK, yeah, everybody's loyal. But it's sort of like, you know, Mike Tyson, everybody's loyal to you get punched in the face, right? And the people in the political realm, they've never been punched in the face. It's one thing to talk about, oh, you know, I'm going to get primaried. It's another thing to talk about, I'm going to do 30 months living in a box in federal prison. That's a different calculus. You know, it's a sad fact of punditry that sports metaphors are just so useful. Let's do a close out here and move to the political realm. But Maggie, along with your colleagues, Glenn Thrush and Alan Foyer, I think yes. you wrote a pretty long piece about Smith. So we've canvassed these moves. Three months technically on the job. Who knows how long his he was over in Europe while his bike accident, you know, recovering. But what's your, your sense of... Smith, who he is, what kind of reaction he's inspiring or not in the public, what kind of cover he's given the department. Just three months in, who is Jack Smith? Look, Jack Smith was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse when I was covering that courthouse oh, a gazillion years right. ago. He's frankly the, the same then as he is now. He is a very intense 
presence. He is meticulous. Uh, he is incredibly details oriented. One of the things that has been striking about him, and yes, you know, I, th I think you noted this, that he had been injured in a bike accident when he was overseas, uh, and that delayed his arrival here for a bit. He has taken some time in setting up shop. Josh is right that the investigation didn't just start the day that he was appointed, but it is true that he stopped the clock on certain things because I apparently can't get away from clock metaphors today. He did stop the clock on certain things. You know, so for instance, Mark Meadows was subpoenaed once before for documents. This is now a documents and grand jury subpoena. He has taken his time to immerse himself in what material is there. They have poured over these transcripts that the House Select Committee investigating the lead up to January 6th and the violence have collected from all of these witnesses. And so my, my sense is that he is moving, as you said, very aggressively. It's not just based on these subpoenas, but also the span of time. You know, you mentioned something about how Pence really only works as an interviewee on the January 6th case. It's actually interesting. He's going a ways back in the questions that he's asking and in the people who he's seeking yeah. to speak with yeah, deep point. into the Trump White House on the Mar-a-Lago case. So it's actually, it's pretty expansive. And he's clearly trying to establish patterns. He's trying to establish Trump's mindset. Were certain moments in time different than others? How did he absorb information? What were the questions that he would ask other people about foreign countries? You know, did he indicate that he wanted to leave? There's a lot at play here. And the two investigations have really overlapped as he's overseeing them much more than they did before. Yeah, I, you know, I think that is the consensus. And it's all Kremlinology or whatever, but there's enough that comes out that from which I think we really can piece together a profile. Can I add one more point here? Of course, go ahead. At least the three of us, the three others of us, besides you, Harry, you know, we're not lawyers, and we're kind of fundamentally operating in a political realm and a political context. Yeah. When we were saying before, you know, when's the cutoff? Is it spring? Is it summer? Stuff like this. I actually wonder whether those cutoffs actually exist. I agree with you. It's a crazy thing if you've got a trial in the heat of a presidential election. But I think you play this out in the other direction. If you have someone who is not a political person, who's an aggressive prosecutor, he was clearly chosen for the task for that reason, unless Garland is just an idiot because everybody seems to have thought of him that way. Garland going, is not an idiot. Yeah, going in. Okay. Is it really the case that he feels like he has a beyond reasonable doubt case built in September? And this guy says, you know what, I have it, but that's pretty weird having a trial in a presidential election year. So I am not going to recommend what I think is a beyond reasonable doubt case of the most serious kind. I'm not going to make that recommendation to Merrick Garland. That doesn't seem very reconcilable with the person that everybody here is describing. Yeah, and frankly, with Garland, in a similar sense, I think the biggest rap against him is he's a process guy right? He's not seeing the bigger picture. But in a similar vein, I would say that if Smith comes to him, shows him the evidence, it is a, you know, as I said, beyond reasonable doubt. It's a strong case. Does Garland really say, wow, you have a strong case, a kind of open and shut case here on a case that has gravity of the highest order, but because it would be weird to be having a trial in the middle of next year, I'm going to say no. He's not going to say no, and I don't think that I said that. No, I'm not saying you said that. I'm saying our sense of where these you know, final points are. My point is, 
I think they are final points that we recognize, but I'm not sure that they matter that much to the actual decision makers here. I think the decision maker is going to be, and we're talking about Garland, the decision maker is going to, I think, decide, this is based on reporting, this is not just on guessing, that I think, Josh, more than a strong case, it would have to literally be open and shut, not just, well, there's a preponderance of evidence. It would have to be very clear beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think even beyond reasonable doubt, that they were going to get a conviction. Then I think that they probably do bring a case for the reason you just said. The flip side of his supporters always say is the country will erupt if he's indicted. Well, you know, half the country will erupt if he isn't. So, I mean, I think that that's not a logical argument. I don't think they won't bring a case because it would be weird. That's it exactly. It's a great point. I'll give the DOJ mindset, I think. You know, with Trump, everything is unprecedented, including the guy could run for president, I think, constitutionally from jail. Yes. But by the same token, it's October. They could lose. I think they're just going forward and imagine the conclusion otherwise. I also will say, and then, you know, I think there's an end for now that Smith recommends even a very strong, but not beyond a shadow case, Garland goes forward, I think. Yeah, it would be hard for me to imagine the counter to that, frankly. Is Garland really going to apply a radically different standard than is ever applied in any other case? After spending two years saying, you know, it's equal application of law, right? And I think that's the crux of the issue. I think that's exactly right. That is the crux right there. Yeah. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the topic today is the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Special counsel Jack Smith has moved a court in Washington, D.C. to pierce the privilege that Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran asserted to avoid testifying about communications he and Trump may have had around the Mar-a-Lago case. Smith argues that those communications were in furtherance of a crime, and thus the privilege doesn't apply under federal law. Loyal listeners to Talking Feds know that we previously published this week's sidebar, but we are rerunning it because it is so central to this week's news and because it's an important and not completely intuitive concept. And to explain the crime-fraud exception... We previously welcomed and are thrilled to welcome again, Judd Apatow. As almost everybody knows, Judd Apatow is a prolific comedian, director, producer, and screenwriter. He's been responsible for bringing us iconic, hilarious, and very human movies and TV shows for decades, including Freaks and Geeks, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, especially near and dear to the hearts of San Diego residents, Knocked Up, Bridesmaids, and the indelible Superbad. He's been nominated for nearly every award in entertainment, including the Golden Globes, Grammys, Writers Guild of America, and Emmys, of which he has won two. So I give you Judd Apatow on the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Many communications that people have with their lawyers are privileged, meaning that you don't have to tell anyone about them, even in response to a lawful demand like a subpoena. That's not the case with all communications with your lawyer. It's only those communications made for the purpose of getting legal advice. 
The attorney-client privilege is the oldest privilege in Anglo-American law. Like other privileges, it exacts a cost on the system since it keeps relevant evidence from coming to light. But we've decided that cost is worth paying in order to promote sound legal advocacy, which would be compromised if a client couldn't rely on a lawyer to keep confidences. But the privilege gives way when it rubs up against other stronger policies. The keenest example, which figures in many of the Trump-related legal dramas, is the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Under that exception, statements made to further or conceal a crime may not be shielded by the attorney-client privilege. Communications with a lawyer about past crimes remain confidential, but the privilege can't be used to shield communications about ongoing or future crimes. So if a lawyer and client discuss ways to obstruct an investigation, or for that matter to launch a new fraud scheme, those communications are not protected. In Breaking Bad, when Saul Goodman and Walter White conspire to launder the money from Walter's drug business, their discussions are not privileged. There have been several cases in the Trump era involving the crime-fraud exception. Probably the best-known happened in California in a case involving John Eastman, the lawyer who tried to develop a legal justification for keeping Vice President Pence from certifying the vote on January 6th. The January 6th committee subpoenaed documents from him, and he asked the court to issue a protective order so that he wouldn't have to produce them. For Talking Feds, I'm Judd Apatow. Thank you very much to Judd Apatow for explaining the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Not only young reds and whites can benefit from decanting. Despite some controversies over the practice, decanting some sparkling wines like Maillie Brut Champagne can expand their flavors. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. 
Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's turn to more raw politics in the presidential race. So Donald Trump, is he a candidate? Whatever. But he's got his first challenger in former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. And, you know, a lot of people seem to be pawing the stall or thinking about it. What's the general calculation for Haley or any candidate not named Trump for, you know, putting one's hat in the ring now, later, waiting for others? What's going on in this whole cluster? Let's say, Maggie, it's eight, not 18. Even so, what's everybody kind of thinking with this weird presence of the former president? I mean, they have different calculations. You know, if you're Nikki Haley, there is an advantage to getting in right now for a couple of reasons. But honestly, Harry, the main one is Tim Scott, who is the senator in her state, who is considering a candidacy of his own, who has a lot of money and is a very good fundraiser and who would have a very strong message. He would, at the moment that I know of, be the only black candidate in the Republican field. He has a a life story that he would point to. And Trump is still popular in South Carolina. So I think that she feels the need to, to do this sort of early. If you're Chris Christie, you're deciding whether it's, you know, this is something that you want to do again. There's really very few recidivists from 2016, right, in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the candidates running. If you're Ron DeSantis, your calculation, and I there are obviously people who think that this is not necessarily the right way. So we've seen a lot of criticism of that recently, and I've written about that this past week. He's waiting until after the legislative session, and he is going to try to get a lot done in Florida that he can point to as a candidate and say, look at all me. culture wars. Crap. Excuse the expression. Yeah. Right. And yeah, look at my bona fides. And so that's what he's going to do. And his assumption is that he is safe in in giving himself a short runway, which typically really doesn't work. If he gets in, it would be early summer, most likely. It's not as late as, say, Rick Perry, who got in very late, or Fred Thompson. But it's still late, and you're not leaving yourself a lot of room for error. What their calculation is, Republicans have invested in him in a way they simply didn't in any other Trump opponent in 2016, and that therefore he will have protective antibodies that will help him. There's so much we don't know about how he is going to perform that it's really an open question. And then there's the question of, does Glenn Youngkin see a lane for himself if Ron DeSantis isn't? He's also a very new governor. Unlike DeSantis, who had a re-election, Youngkin only got elected in the last year and a half. I'm just thinking of uh, the, the other candidates. I think Ted Cruz is extremely unlikely to run. So we're talking about a small group of people who are all sort of looking at where there is a window, but few of them see the advantage in getting in very early and just being the person Trump kicks over and over again. So you're you're seeing this as kind of retail and not a sort of overall Trump problem. Let's stick in with Nikki Haley for a minute. In some ways on paper, she seems to have, you know, decent resume, attractive package, but I don't think that's the view of, you know, close observers. So, Charlie, you wrote a pretty devastating uh, takedown of her last year, the unbearable lightness of Nikki. And I think your view is pretty well shared. So you don't take her candidacy seriously, it sounds like. And and by the way, no one takes Pence's seriously either. Give us your thoughts about why you see Nikki Haley as, you know, a lightweight. Well, you know, the problem with Nikki Haley is that uh, she is the future of the Republican Party if we were back in 2015 or 2013 when the Republican Party was thinking that it had this diverse, inclusive uh, sort of appeal. That's just not the case anymore. 
And so you're right. I mean, on paper, she ought to be a very formidable candidate, former successful governor, a UN ambassador, certainly presents herself well as running, looks like a running a very professional campaign. But you really have the sense that she's running a campaign that doesn't account for what has happened to the Republican Party over the last six or seven years, what has happened to the Republican base. And so she's going to try to do this very, very fancy dance where she is going to present herself as the new generation, as, some, as a change, while somehow never taking a shot at Donald Trump. Now, there are some fundamental differences that she could emphasize. She and Trump disagree very significantly on issues like, for example, Ukraine. But and she's not unique in this. This is going to be a problem for all the other candidates. They want to take out Trump without ever saying his name. And this is going to be a problem for Ron DeSantis as well. So my take at the moment is that right now it's just sort of like waiting for DeSantis. It's DeSantis and Trump and then everybody else. What we don't know is what kind of a candidate Ron DeSantis is going to be. You know, it's interesting hearing references to Fred Thompson or Rick Perry, because I certainly remember when they were the next big thing, when it was President Scott Walker, President Rudy Giuliani, there is that huge leap from being a governor to a presidential campaign. But Maggie is absolutely right that there is something about DeSantis's potential right now that that does separate him, that he does have, what was your phrase, Maggie? Was the antibodies? The, yeah, that he's got more people who are invested in his candidacy that might be giving him antibodies the other didn't have, yes. And this is absolutely true. So he, at the moment, he actually, you know, has successfully co-opted a significant portion of the MAGA base. He is acceptable to them. He's also got some of the conservative, you know, punditocracy. National Review has become a fanzine for him. He would be broadly acceptable to the Republican coalition in a way that nobody else is, obviously. But the question is, how does he run against Donald Trump? Do we know? When Donald Trump takes more shots, does he have a glass jaw? Can he take a punch? Can he throw a punch? How does his appeal scale up? You know, he's been very successful in Florida, being sort of pugilistic and playing to his performative jerkitude. How does that play on a national stage? I also think you're going to see a very interesting back and forth, even though Mike Pence is not going anywhere. It's clear that his strategy, his theory of the case is that he's going to run as far to the right on the social issues as he possibly can. He's going to try to outflank everybody on abortion and many of these other issues, which is going to be really tough with Ron DeSantis. But what it means is that there's the center of gravity in the Republican Party will be intensely pulled to the right on the social issues, exactly the kind of issues that have proved to be such a problem for them in the midterms. And how Ron DeSantis handles this? I mean, Ron DeSantis wants to be the leader of the free world. And yet, can anybody here tell me what Ron DeSantis's position on, I don't know, Ukraine is? Is he going to be able to, you know, engage in a tit for tat? Is he going to be able to make a case for why not Donald Trump? Or are they all engaging in what the Atlantic described as the magical thinking, you know, that you don't attack him, you don't make him mad, and then something, something, something magical happens and Donald Trump goes away. Because right now, short of Donald Trump being indicted and, and carted off or dying. I'm not sure that they have a strategy for taking on Donald Trump at the moment. I think that's exactly the point. And I'm fairly skeptical that DeSantis's thing will really succeed nationwide. I don't mean in the sense of a general election, just in front of the national media and so forth. I mean, the thing about Donald Trump and what his 
what his legion of enemies are sometimes have a difficult time admitting is he's charming. He's funny. Now, he's also evil in a lot of ways, but he's got a thing, the way he kind of rolls with the punches. And again, a lot of people who hate him aren't willing to be honest with themselves that vicious humor can still be funny, right? And he has that thing. And when I see DeSantis on TV and stuff, he doesn't have that thing. He doesn't have that je ne sais quoi. It's yeah, true. he doesn't have that. So I think, to me, I mean, Chris Christie. Is Chris Christie going to be the GOP nominee in 2024? For different reasons, it's about as absurd as Nikki Haley, you know, Mike Pompeo. It kind of applies to everybody but Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. The weird thing here, though, is... Maggie's right that a lot of people have bought in heavily to Ron DeSantis. And there's no question, broadly speaking, a lot of you know self-identified Republicans across the country, they like what they see at a distance with him. But I think there's also no question when you see polls that have him at 35% or maybe 50% among Republican voters, that is, I want us to be done with Donald Trump. And he's the guy who seems like he could end this Donald Trump thing. Yeah, that's it. And right. so I think the second that the campaign starts to unfold in kind of a way where you say, okay, maybe he's not, I think that could collapse pretty quickly in a way that certainly we know that, that Donald Trump's support is not going to collapse. And at that point, it's kind of hard to see exactly where that goes because that group needs to then find someone else. Who's our horse to end this Donald Trump thing? And it's not going to be Nikki Haley. And it's kind of not going to be anybody else who seems like someone who's actually going to run. So there's a lot of volatility and weirdness in this because I don't know where that goes. I mean, I think where it goes is that everything becomes very fractured. And Donald Trump stacks up a lot of delegates with a not overwhelming popular vote spread, but who knows? It's, it's On the Republican side, is it still winner-take-all? I'm not sure, actually. It's a good question, and I'm not yeah. sure the answer. It's yeah. a state-by-state yeah. determination, but I think most are winner-take-all, Maine, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's mostly the same thing as it was in 2016, but you're right. I mean, that's a huge factor here. But again, that to me is the thing. You can imagine a scenario where you have debates with, say, six candidates. Trump and DeSantis are obviously two of those candidates. DeSantis tries to approach it as being, you know, fairly normal. Trump insults him and it just doesn't play. And people look at it and say, man, this dude's the past. And it kind of moves towards DeSantis. That's possible. I'm not saying Trump's sure. support would collapse, but enough that he could win the nomination. But it also seems to me, you know, this kind of thing, like, I'm not going to stoop to the level of critiquing him calling me meatball Ron or whatever. I don't think that cuts it in Republican politics. Republican politics now is pugilistic and about dominance. And he does not have the strength to kind of laugh at Donald Trump. You know, if Donald Trump is in prison and losing all his support, you can say like, yeah, whatever, Donald Trump. But he can't do that. He has to defeat Donald Trump. There's so much we don't know about him as a as a political operator right. on a national stage. To your point, Josh, you know, your your point about not strong enough. My question is does he have the political dexterity to do it at all? 
I 100% agree with you. The guy I see in these videos seems kind of clunky and fundamentally awkward on camera. And again, Trump's thing is he's not awkward. And he is a performer. I had this line in the book that I wrote about him, about how in 2015 it became clear that there was a psychological thriller score and a laugh track behind him at all times. And the laugh track piece, which Josh was pointing to earlier, is really, really important. And this is a missing ingredient with Trump this time, is the only thing I would say. And it's part of how you know the investigations are eating at him. In 2015, Donald Trump was clearly having fun. There is very little so far that suggests to me that he's having fun, even in these what seem like kind of dutiful attacks on Nikki Haley. Now, maybe that'll change as time goes on, and maybe it'll change if Fox News ever lets him back on in any meaningful way. I think that's been a big piece in absentia, too. But until he is having fun, that to me is the big comparison, which I know sounds strange given the intensity and the heaviness of what we're talking about. I think it's 100% right. And in a fundamental sense... I think he stopped having fun in like February 2017, frankly. That was sort of the story of his presidency in a lot of ways. I think that's mostly right. I think there were moments of fun, but I think that certainly by the time of February 2020, which was when COVID was in full bloom, that was the end. Yeah, a lot of fat Elvis vibes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got to leave it there for now. We're out of time, I'm so sorry to say, but this big story is just starting. Uh, we just got a minute for our final feature of Talking Five. Oh, this will be new to you, Maggie, where we <laughs> take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question, are you more afraid or impressed with recent developments in chat and search AI and why? Definitely afraid. I, I can answer this in, in a few seconds. Yeah. Definitely afraid. With three words left over. Okay. <laughs> I'm way behind the curve. Okay, that's five. Perfect. That counts. More afraid than impressed. I'm with you guys. Be afraid. Be very afraid. All right. Sad to say we are out of time. Thank you very much to Maggie, Charlie, and Josh. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content, breaking down the most important legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just this past week, we posted a conversation with aerospace engineering professor Ian Boyd about the spy balloons that are suddenly all over the news. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you enjoy the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it and you get some really excellent content to boot. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. 
Production assistance by David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to the great Judd Apatow for explaining the crime fraud exception. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.